This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 69. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, so what about standing or sometimes called continuing or running objections? All right, before I share some thoughts about the wisdom of standing objections, offering them, accepting them, I wanted to give you two quick reminders. Uh, first, remember again that some sites where you get your podcast episodes will limit the available length or number of characters in an episode's show notes, and that's true for all podcasts. If you scroll down looking at the list of authorities in our show notes for each episode, you may in some situations see that the notes end with a fragment of a sentence. If that happens, it just means that our list of authorities is longer than your hosting site allows a podcast to show. All you need to do is find the link somewhere around the bottom that says go to episode or podcast homepage and you can click right through to the site where our podcast originates and you'll be able to see the full list or set of show notes and the full list of authorities. In this episode, for example, we have 12 case citations with lengthy parentheticals and one citation to a rule. So the episode notes for this show are longer than many and may be clipped on your site. Second reminder, if we covered a topic in an episode and for some reason down the road, you need to go back and look at an episode or listen to an episode again, always be sure to check that episode's show notes as well for new updates. We regularly add new court decisions to the show notes where a decision is relevant to the episode. By example, this week we added the Passmore decision out of the Southern District of Ohio, issued just five days ago, to the show notes of episode six, which is where we explained how to use the rules of evidence to obtain documents used by deponents to refresh their recollections. There's a precise way to ask the foundational question in a deposition to gain entitlement to the documents that the deponents used to refresh their recollection. Again, we covered that in episode six. In the new decision, Passmore, the deponent in question made the critical mistake of using meeting minutes and emails that apparently contained attorney-client privileged content to prepare for her deposition. So what did the opposing lawyers do in that case? Well, they asked the right questions of the deponent to lay the foundation to get those documents and the trial court ordered those documents to be produced unredacted, deeming the privilege waived. So you've got to be very careful about using privileged documents to prepare your witnesses for depositions. I've covered that in the books and in several podcast episodes. You can't use privileged materials to prepare deponents without running the risk of having those documents produced in unredacted form. All right, so standing objections. Let's talk about today's episode topic. Standing objections, sometimes called continuing or running objections. What are they and do they work for you or against you? A standing objection, which I think is the term most commonly used, is simply an objection made once, generally, and expressly intended to apply to all subsequent questions of a like kind for the purpose of avoiding disruptive and repetitive objections. So you're in a deposition where the examining lawyer is asking questions about an event from the witness's past, which may or may not be particularly harmful, but which you feel is such that you've got to make an objection now. So you reach agreement with the examining lawyer that you will have a standing objection to all questions about that particular event from the past based on whatever ground your objection is based. Or 
if you're the examining lawyer and the defending lawyer is blurting out repeated objections of the exact same kind on the exact same line of questions, you may offer a standing objection to that lawyer, meaning they no longer have to voice a specific objection immediately following each question on that topic. And so mission accomplished for both sides. In most jurisdictions, the notion of a standing or continuing objection is simply a matter of custom and practice and not of a specific rule applicable to depositions. It's just something that lawyers do out of convenience and efficiency. Now, under the federal rules, there is a specific evidentiary rule, 103, that does eliminate the need to make ongoing objections about a matter once a court has ruled on the dispute definitively on the record, either before or during trial. Once a court makes a ruling on an evidentiary matter under Rule 103B, you need not renew the objection or make an offer of proof to preserve your right to assert error on appeal. But that rule relates specifically to situations where a court has now ruled on an evidentiary dispute. In your depositions, of course, there is no judge, and there won't be, absent a call to the court during a break in the deposition, there won't be a ruling on the development of evidence as it evolves during the deposition. So Rule 103, as written, doesn't fit the situation of a deposition because there isn't going to be a court ruling that will relieve you of the need to make continuing objections while the deposition is in progress. And on top of that, as you know, the main rule, the main federal rule on depositions, Rule 30, specifically says that there are two rules of evidence that do not apply to depositions, one of which is Rule 103, the continuing objection rule. So if you're going to have a standing objection in most jurisdictions in a deposition, you've got to do a few things. First, you have to check your rules and governing codes to see if there's a provision that addresses the obligation to make objections in depositions in your jurisdiction. If there is, and if it makes mandatory the assertion of objections, perhaps with explanations in depositions, then you may not have the option of reaching agreement with opposing lawyers uh, to standing objections. So you've got to check that out. Look at the PSE and G shareholder litigation case in the show notes. There the court said that even though the plaintiff's lawyer offered a standing objection and did not ask for specific grounds for objections during the deposition, the court found that the defense lawyer waived objections because that jurisdiction had a code provision that specifically required objections with explanations of the grounds. Now, assuming your jurisdiction has no specific rule on it, how should you go about reaching agreement on a standing objection? And just as importantly, should you? Let's go ahead and talk about some practice pointers. If you're taking a deposition, you may want to grant a standing objection as to specific lines of examination if it will reduce disruptions, especially if the objections you feel are unfounded. Frequent objections in any deposition are very disruptive to a good examination. It's harder for you to focus. It's harder for the witness to focus. So in some situations, you may wish to offer the defending lawyers a standing objection on a specific line of questioning. It just may be more beneficial to you for your purposes. On the flip side, and again, if you're conducting the examination, you may wish to accept an offer from the defending lawyer of a standing objection on that same line of questioning to keep things flowing smoothly. On the other hand, you may not want to agree to a standing objection if you're unsure about the way that you're phrasing questions 
or if you're unsure about whether there are legitimate grounds because of the way you're asking questions on which your adversary may be able to keep the questions and the answers out. In that situation, you may want the opposing lawyer to make objections. Sometimes your opposing lawyers are going to be very sharp folks with a keen understanding of the law and their objections might actually be a very useful guide to tightening your questions to enhance the likelihood of their admissibility on summary judgment and at trial. So the complete absence of objections because of a standing agreement might actually give you a false sense of security that everything is actually just going quite well in the way that you're asking questions. I frequently run up against some of the very brightest lawyers in the country, and I'll tell you, I learn a great deal from them, including from the objections they make and how they make them. So in mission critical examinations, I may force the opposing lawyers to make their objections rather than agree to a standing objection so that I know if I'm veering off course and I need to get back in my lane. I want to know if there's something I'm doing in the way that I'm asking questions that's baking a fatal flaw into the questions that will make the question and the answer inadmissible. And you know something else? Sometimes objections will clue me in as to the soft spots in an adversary's case. So if I relieve an opposing counsel of the obligation to object, I may not have the same cues about how close I am to the target. Have you ever played the child's game hot and cold? The basic concept, of course, is very simple. You hide an object, your child looks for it, and you use temperature words to tell them if they're moving closer to the object, getting warmer, or away from it, getting colder. As they get closer to the hidden object, you may provide even more clues like hotter, hotter, burning, scorching, have you ever noticed that when you're zeroing in on the critical weaknesses for a witness or on a defense or claim that the defending lawyer's objections begin to resemble the hot and cold game, the objections get louder, more frequent, more obnoxious? Well, that change in objection style is an incredibly valuable clue for you. So valuable that the opposing lawyer might as well be saying hotter, burning, scorching. They're literally giving away their position. So that's a good reason not to agree to standing objections. Now, again, if the opposing lawyer is just an obstructionist or sometimes just as bad, literally has no idea what they're doing, you might be better off offering or agreeing to a standing objection. But remember, granting a standing objection, assuming that your jurisdiction allows it, gives your opposing number a pass, not only to certain precise questions, but potentially to entire lines of questions. That in turn, could allow them to assert objections later in the case that you never intended through the standing objection agreement. So you've got to be very careful in how you frame the offer or acceptance pertaining to a standing objection. You've got to be very precise so that your adversary doesn't benefit later from an ambiguous standing objection agreement. Make sure the standing objection isn't just any questions about such and such, but the exact questions or precise categories or precise subjects and make sure you have a crystal clear agreement on the record. So express agreement by all sides, express agreement on the terms and obviously always on the record. It's got to be in the transcript. Now, if a lawyer is truly disrupting your deposition, you may think, why don't I just grant them a continuing objection to all questions or to a broad category? 
That's the Carlisle case in the show notes where plaintiff's counsel there offered a continuing objection to each and every question in the deposition because of the flood of objections that were being made by the defense. According to the opinion, something like 280 objections in 322 pages of transcript. You might also do it if you're dealing with a pro se litigant where you anticipate serious problems in upcoming depositions. That's what the court did in the McComb case in the show notes. The plaintiff in that case was proceeding by herself. The defense apparently had some difficulty dealing with the pro se plaintiff and getting the depositions even set up. So to smooth things out in advance, the court there gave the plaintiff a preserved standing objection to all questions asked by the defense at her deposition. So no need to object, no speaking objections, no commentary, no evidentiary objections, just answer the questions. Now, obviously when you grant a continuing objection of that breadth, you are literally relieving the adversary, the defending lawyers of any obligation to even pay attention and of any obligation to help you by alerting you through their objections to questions that you might be able to correct on the fly if needed. If you grant a broad continuing objection, you might just be planting landmines for yourself down the road that will blow up only later when it's too late to fix the questions or the answers and make them admissible either on summary judgment or at trial. I can tell you for my own purposes that after more than 20,000 depositions, I have never granted a continuing objection to all questions. I have only ever done it for very precise narrow lines of examination. Now, if a lawyer is extraordinarily disruptive in the way he or she is making objections, I am more inclined to seek a protective order, either mid-deposition by calling the judge on a break or by halting the deposition entirely, than I would be to grant a broad standing objection. I don't want to reward that kind of behavior. All right, so let's look at the other side of the coin. If you're defending a deposition, Again, you have to know if your jurisdiction requires you to make objections. An offer of a standing objection, even if agreed, will do you no good if your jurisdiction mandates objections with explanations. There are a few, but very few, jurisdictions that have such a rule, but you've got to check. Next, you have to decide if offered a standing objection, whether sitting silent may allow the opposing lawyer to wreak havoc by asking all kinds of questions that are improper your silence might make it easier for them to do so. Now, sometimes, such as in the Bellevue Park Homeowner Association case in the show notes, lawyers will agree to standing objections and then occasionally object anyway. Sometimes you just have to do that. There's no easy bright line rule. So I would point out that agreement to a standing objection does not mean that you are now necessarily forbidden from speaking up at all, from making any objection whatsoever. It relieves you of the obligation to do so, but it's not the equivalent of a court order. If you feel an objection is necessary, make it, but make it properly, even if you have a standing objection agreement. The cardinal rule in objections, as you know, is that proper objections, not timely made, are lost. Again, that's one of the other lessons from the Bellevue Park case. Uh, there, the defense counsel for a homeowner association made a number of objections during the deposition despite having agreed at the outset to a standing objection to specific topics. Plaintiff's counsel moves for sanctions saying, look, you agreed to a standing objection and you continued to disrupt the deposition. Court says, yes, some of these objections were unnecessary, quote, 
given that plaintiff's counsel had granted the defense counsel a standing objection to disputed topics. So the court said, while the objections were unnecessary, they still didn't warrant sanctions. All right, next point. If you're defending a deposition and you decide that a standing objection is in your best interest, be sure you don't simply declare that you're making a standing objection, such as, I'm gonna go ahead and make a standing objection to all the questions about his prior lawsuit history. Insist on express agreement from all the lawyers participating in the deposition. Get an actual response from the examining lawyer and anyone else who's participating in the deposition. Otherwise, you may waive that objection. That's the Riley case in the show notes. Although in that context, it arose uh, during a trial. The defense lawyer apparently objected to a question on a specific topic, but did not ask for or receive a standing objection to the testimony. So the appeals court in that case said, you didn't have a standing objection that we can recognize, so your objections were waived and they, they don't form a basis on appeal for overturning the result. All right, something else to consider. It's important to specifically define the questions or topics to which your standing objection will apply. If objectionable questions do not clearly fall within the scope of your standing objection agreement, you've waived it. Here's something else to think about. Be very careful about seeking or agreeing to standing objections to questions or behavior that is clearly improper. That's the way one court framed it in the show notes. That's the Gutis case, G-O-U-T-I-S. There the court said that standing objections should never be used to allow a lawyer continually to perpetrate or perpetuate an error. Now again, that case, the Gutis case, arose in a trial context where the trial judge agreed that certain questions were improper, but allowed a standing objection, oddly, rather than directing the examining lawyer to halt the line of improper questions. Now the same principle, that same principle also applies to inquiries that would invade a privilege. Clearly, you should never agree to a standing objection that allows an examining lawyer to inquire about privileged matters. That's never a proper use of standing objections. If you allow an examiner to invade privilege, even with an agreement to a standing objection, you're likely to have waived the privilege. That's the Doe case, D-O-E, in the show notes. There the court said, quote, at a deposition, a question calling for privileged information cannot be answered subject to a later judicial ruling on the propriety of the question. The privilege is lost. All right, a few other pointers and then we'll wrap up. If you're offered a standing objection by an examining lawyer, give some thought to how the judge might perceive you or the situation if you say no, if you reject the offer of a standing objection. What might the judge think is your motive for declining a standing objection and for continuing to make frequent or multiple objections? So if you decline an examining lawyer's offer of a standing objection, be sure to explain on the record why you are declining. It may well be that the questions are not going to come out in a way that allows you to easily spot which questions are within the scope and which are not. You may have other grounds as well. And if your objections comply with the rules and are not argumentative, you're far less likely to run into trouble for turning down an examining lawyer's standing objection offer. In the Carlisle case in the show notes from 2019, the opinion there notes that plaintiff's counsel, quote, offered to have the court reporter mark a continuing objection to each and every question to allow for a smoother deposition, but one of the defense counsel refused, end quote. 
the federal judge in that case at a hearing on the issue actually called out one of the defense lawyers as to why a standing objection wouldn't have protected his client. And the court said that the defense lawyer could offer no reason why a standing objection wouldn't have protected his client. And that the lawyer merely said instead that it was a matter of that lawyer's personal practice not to agree to standing objections. You know, it may well be that in a given situation in one of your depositions, there just isn't a way to precisely define the scope of a standing objection agreement. So you shouldn't hesitate to decline that if you determine that it's in your client's best interest to turn it down. But if you can, at the time that it's offered, it's good to explain on the record at least some of your justifications for saying no, so that a court reviewing it later understands why you did it. All right, standing objections, that's it for today. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't left us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast, would you mind taking a minute and doing that for us? We so deeply appreciate it. And it's a great, free, and fast way to say thank you to our staff who spend a tremendous amount of time putting together the research for these episodes. All right, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.